Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... So the topics that we talk about are consent. That's definitely one of our most popular conversations that we have. We delve into uh, like sex positivity, healthy relationships. A campaign in Western Australia is empowering women about respect and consent. We have all the details. Also, I think it's important for people to understand that trauma is a wound. So even though we can't see it, it really needs to be treated with the same care time and compassion. We learn more about PTSD and management strategies ahead of World Mental Health Day. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the Voice to Parliament referendum is just around the corner and both sides of the campaigns are gearing up as Australians prepare to vote on enshrining a First Nations voice into the Constitution. Saturday, October 14th is Decision Day and both sides are urging multicultural communities to get involved in the process. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan reports. Over the last five weeks, Australians have been listening and following the Voice to Parliament referendum campaigns. Both sides have toured across Australia to inform the public about their stance with the enshrined voice proposed by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. But the road hasn't been all sweet. Last week's spokesperson from the No Campaign and Director Indigenous Forum at the Centre for Independent Studies, Niungai Warren Mundin, addressed the National Press Club, saying the Uluru Statement of the Heart is a decision of war against modern Australia. He says the statement goes against the democratic values of equality. When you look at the paper with the 439 words on it, you know, that covering page with the signatories, there's also 26 pages behind that, which is a manifesto of how they're going to put in place the voice. And it talks about, you know, reparation, it talks about sovereignty, dual sovereignty, it talks about a number of issues like that, which is, uh, you know, which is a, a really attack on our our liberal democracy where everyone is treated equal and we're on this incredible journey since the 1967 referendum to make Australia a better place and, a, and we're appealing to our a better self. But campaign director for Yes 23, Dean Perkin, disagrees and says the statement has much more values. I was there when the Uluru Statement from the Heart was created and I, was, I had the great privilege of being able to sign the Uluru Statement from the Heart alongside many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from communities across our country. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is a statement of peace and love of our country and an invitation to all Australians to join with us and help find some of the solutions to the challenges facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It is a statement of peace, it is a statement of reconciliation and I asked all Australians to join us in that. One of the few referendums Australians passed was the 1967 one, allowing First Nations people to be counted as part of the population. 
Mr. Mandin says this was a great achievement and the voice might segregate First Nations people again. What the 67 referendum did was force the states because the federal government got the power of making laws about Aboriginals and force the states to get rid of all these discriminatory laws and it ended segregation so we, were, we could move into the cities and towns and, and work and there was no more curfews. We got our salaries. It was a massive change. And so we've been on that journey as full equal citizens since then. So all the equality of citizenship and all the equality of the opportunities that happen in Australia. Within four or five years, we set up Aboriginal medical services, uh, health services, education programs, uh, business-type programs, a whole range of things, legal services and that, which worked and helped Aboriginal people you know, become part of the wider Australian community. While the 1967 referendum was an important step in Australia, Mr Pirkin says there are much more issues which haven't been fixed. There's a program, there's a strategy every year called the Close and the Gap Strategy. It's been a bipartisan strategy that reports on progress for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this country. And it's been going for more than a decade. And in that strategy, there are 19 targets. It's aimed at fundamentally reducing the life expectancy gap. You know, there's still an eight-year life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians in this country. That's just not good enough. And in fact, when you get out to some of the remote places across the country, for example, Aboriginal men in remote parts of South Australia, their life expectancy is 48 years so I don't agree with the idea that uh, things are just all very good for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this country. We shouldn't be living in a country where any Australian's life expectancy is 48 years. The closing the gap strategy year on year shows ongoing failure. Only four out of the 19 targets aimed at reducing that disadvantage. Both sides acknowledge multicultural communities vote is critical for the referendum. The No campaign says their opponents are misleading these communities. They will be critical because, you know, over 50% of us Australians have been born overseas or their parents have been born overseas. So they're going to play a major part in this campaign. It's important uh, for them to vote no because the first thing about the, the uh, Yes campaign is they're built it on a lie that this idea that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do not have a voice. But the Yes campaign has received positive feedback about the boys. I think for many people, certainly those that come from other countries that are now calling Australia home, they understand the great benefits that this country offers in coming here and making Australia home. And they also recognise that the Indigenous peoples of this country are struggling in many cases and they want to be part of the solutions. They want to be part of actually uh, addressing some of those challenges facing Indigenous peoples in this country. Free voting polls are open and the Australian Electoral Commission provides locations where citizens can vote. That was The Wire's Eduardo Jordan with the story. A campaign in Western Australia is raising awareness, teaching women and girls about respect and consent. The campaign We Are Women works to provide safe spaces to talk about taboo subjects and empower women in having these conversations. Now schools across the state are joining the campaign. And The Wire's contributor from RTRFM, Danae Gibson, spoke to health promotion practitioner and We Are Women co-founder, Kate Raston, to find out more. Yeah, so we spell our women in the name W-O-M-X-N. And basically when the organisation first started, we just wanted to make the space purely for 
people who don't identify as male, so anybody else that sort of identifies other than male. So we took the we took the word men out of the word women and replaced it with with the X. But this is really to show um, again that we are inclusive of people that don't necessarily identify as women or or a man, and that they are welcome in the education sessions that we are running. Uh, having said that, now we are um, branching out into offering education sessions for young boys. Um, we do have young boys that come into our female sessions only, but we are moving into the male-only space now as well, which is really exciting for that, us. That's great. Is that something set for next year? Yeah, so we have actually been running a bunch of pilot projects mm-hmm. this year, sort of evaluating the programs, how we're offering them, um, how it sits with young boys. Um, and we've had some really, really good research and feedback from those programs. So we're going to be rolling them out in 2024. We're actually um, doing some preliminary sessions in term four this year. Um, but we're, we're definitely term one, 2024 will be sort of the big launch of these male programs. So we're very excited about that. That's fantastic work. Well, and that's a big job to be in schools. And it's it's a big ask for schools to invite you in how's that working yeah so we are it is a big ask for schools to come and come and have us in especially due to the nature of the topics that we are talking about at the moment you know we are really picking up with how many schools are having us come in and it's more the work we're doing is based around word of mouth instead of us having to sort of reach out and engage Mm -hmm. with schools which is a really positive step to see that schools are taking ownership over what needs to be done in their environment and um, are calling out for external providers to come in and deliver this education. I mean, we know that health professionals are best placed to deliver the education that that we are doing. So it's really reassuring that schools um, can see the need for that. I think we're sitting at about 11,000 students we've worked with thus far, which is um, huge numbers for us and, and numbers that we're really proud of. So you've got a team of young people um, sharing messages with young people. What sorts of conversations are you having? What are you talking about? We do have a team. We have a team of about 20 young women now, and these are all qualified professionals. So they're all, it's quite multidisciplinary, which is really nice because it draws on knowledge and experiences from different realms. And so the topics that we talk about are consent. That's definitely one of our most popular conversations that we have. We delve into uh, like sex positivity, healthy relationships. Another one of our, big, of our big ones is sort of social media. So the ins and outs of sort of real life versus what's online, cyberbullying, sexting, pornography as mm-hmm. well. So we are having some, I'll say taboo, but in quotation marks, yeah. uh, conversations. Kate, uh, what age group are, are you talking with? So we start as young as year five. However, all of our programs are tailored to the age group that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And we actually go all the way up to about 25 years of age. Um, Obviously, our high school programs are capped at year 12, but we do go into the community and run sessions with people outside of school as well. That's fantastic. Ten's a crucial age for young people and and their social development. Correct. Yeah, we find... um, that's actually my personal favourite group to run <laughs> is, is the, the year fives and sixes. We do our menstrual program with them and oh, they're just so enthusiastic and they want to learn so much and they're not quite at that stage yet where things are uncool. Uh, so yeah. it's really important to not only talk about menstrual health in that age group but also consent and consent 
you know, just in, in everyday life and how we can ask to borrow things and how we can ask what people would like to do and giving young people autonomy over the choices that they make. And hoping, looking forward, that they will become peer educators as well because the peer-to-peer model is really important, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really important aspect. It's the model that we use because obviously we know that young people relate best to young people. And we also really rely on storytelling as well. I think storytelling is so important for engaging young people and getting the message across. So I hope that the young people that we work with will continue that forward in their future. I mean, we've had some really beautiful young people that want to come and um, volunteer their time with us. You know, we go to schools and then they try and they want to come and help us. Co-founder of We Are Women, Kate Rustin there, ending the story by RTRFM's Danae Gibson in Perth. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Katoomba on 2RBM 89.1 FM. To our listeners in Tari on Bob Radio, 104.7 FM. And to the other side of the country on Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A Sunshine Coast mental health clinic has reported a 42% increase in guests presenting with PTSD and CPTSD over the last 12 months. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, 75% of Australian adults will experience an event that causes psychological trauma within their lifetime. With World Mental Health Day just a few days away, I spoke with Georgia Ray, psychologist and clinical lead at Palladium Private, to learn more about PTSD and effective treatments for the disorder. With the increase in people presenting with PTSD, do you think this is an increase in people having PTSD or do you think that it's an increase in people coming forward and actually seeking treatment and support? It's definitely an increase in people coming forward. Um, You know, we have a lot more knowledge. We have a lot more information we're exposed to now. So people are, I guess, becoming more aware that, you know, maybe what they're feeling, thinking, experiencing isn't an experience that you can just kind of minimise or normalise. It's actually a presentation and there is a there is a diagnosis of PTSD, which, which they can probably relate to now. Um, you know, back in the day, I guess we would sweep things under the rug and just say, oh, you know, toughen up. But those days are now gone. Um, you know, people are addressing their issues. They are becoming more aware. And as a society, you know, we want people to heal and get better and... Um, and I think it's a, it's a good progression. For our listeners that don't know, can you talk a little bit about PTSD and I guess what the difference between, you know, having some trauma or experiencing trauma and actually developing PTSD is? So trauma is not what happens to you. Uh, trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. So you can't just experience something that's traumatic and think everyone's going to to have the same response. Some people will develop PTSD and some won't, even though they may experience the same traumatic events. So it's really an individual experience. I think it's important for people to understand that trauma is a wound. So it's a psychological wound. So even though we can't see it in someone, it really needs to be treated with the same care, 
time and compassion as say anyone who would have even say a physical wound or a physical injury. You know, I can imagine a lot of people probably wouldn't know that they have PTSD or that they're suffering from PTSD. What are some of the signs that you, I guess, commonly see in your practice? So your classic signs of PTSD are those flashbacks, vivid nightmares, um, definitely low mood, uh, negative thinking, social isolation is really common, difficulty concentrating. Um, so, you know, when that functioning is impacted, so some people are unable to go to work, um, you know, within the family environment, are struggling to function there as well. You get your insomnia, it can affect your appetite. You can also see that say, immediately after an event, or you can even see it months and even years later. So what we've seen with individuals who don't get that support that they need, we see it can have uh, those secondary effects. So you'll often see signs of addiction um, and dependence, so with drugs and alcohol and um and, and that's where it can then, I guess, you, you've got you've got kind of two areas that you're treating. You're treating the, the PTSD and someone who, who has a dependence. And obviously treatment is tailored to the individual, but what's the gold standard of treatment or what have you seen has had the most positive impacts um, for people that you're treating with PTSD? Basically, the gold standard is both individual and group therapy. So with your individual therapy, you want that with, an, with a one-on-one psychologist or psychotherapist and you want to be kind of engaging in types of therapies like CBT, EMDR, you've got prolonged exposure therapy, mindfulness-based therapies and uh, that trauma-focused CBT and then in your group therapy you want to make sure that that's very psychoeducational based and offers that support and that connection for the individual. How beneficial yeah. is it for people suffering from PTSD to be able to talk to other people that might be able to relate to their lived experience? Connection is one of the most healing qualities of therapy. Um, so when you're in a group and you're connecting to other people who may share similar experiences or similar symptoms, you start to see, even from a brain activity level, that connection increases. And as we know, social isolation is one of those main um, kind of symptoms from PTSD. So it really kind of starts to reintegrate someone back into socialising and connecting again. I guess there's something to be said about, even from like a policy standpoint or government standpoint, about needing to increase the accessibility or the level of support that's that's offered to people as we see people become more comfortable coming forward and reaching out for support? Unfortunately, there is this common, I guess, association, which is highly inaccurate, that PTSD is only in, um, say, emergency workers or veterans. Although it does affect that that population hugely, it really is seen in day-to-day Australians as well. So I think awareness um, is really, really important and making sure people can understand that just because you haven't gone off to um, fight in a war zone doesn't mean that you can't have the same symptoms as someone who has. That was psychologist Georgia Ray ending that report. A newly published study is urging policymakers to improve contact between incarcerated parents and their children by embracing technology in prisons. Researchers from UNSW Canberra, the University of New England and the Australian National University found better use of technology within the Australian prison system can help to support families within the criminal justice system and facilitate an easier transition back into society. 
Tune FM's Ash Taylor spoke to Dr Lucas Carey from the University of New England about his own lived experience and the findings of the study. We're talking here of, of, of a parent missing. Yes, through their own actions, they have made a mistake not being soft on crime, and I've said that before, but understanding that, yes, they're incarcerated, but the silent victims of this are the kids. You know, they're trying to work out why mum or dad's disappeared, why mum or dad can't talk to them every day, why they can't hug mum or dad when they go and see them. The use of technology can assist this. It can break down some of those barriers. It can actually allow that connectivity to take place all through some really small mindset changes. Yeah, because in your research, Lucas, you were talking about things like, you know, using FaceTime or in-cell tablets to be able to give these people access to their families when they want it to. You know, why is it that that's not currently being done? Well, it, it, it's partly a mindset change. So there's some areas that the technology exists. So in New South Wales, uh, Brett Collins from the, the, the Justice Abroad Action Group has worked extraordinarily hard with the New South Wales government to get tablets um, into the large majority of cells throughout New South Wales prisons. But the second part is, and this is where it gets a little bit real, Ash, is I spend some time myself uh, in prison and that's why I do what I do. And that's why I work in the space because we want to try and make people not to have to go through that experience that, that I went through myself. And that's that lived and living experience. But one of the most vulnerable times and vulnerable spaces in a place where vulnerability is not okay, vulnerability is not safe in prison, where one of the times where you are the least vulnerable is when you are speaking to or have just finished speaking to your children. The large majority of the, the guys that I had served my time with were strongly connected to their children. And when you're in a vulnerable space, myself included, and some of the biggest, strongest people that you could ever imagine, get off the phone after talking to their children and are in tears, are in traumatic um, you know, crisis mode where they are shattered. And the amount of times after that, you know, between six and seven o'clock at night when the, the phones are open or four or five, depending upon the prison you're in, it is a rush to get to the phones. You get to see and speak to your children for anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depending upon the prison you're in. And that is the hardest five to 10 minutes of your day and in some instances of your life because you are literally hearing about things that take place and things that are happening to your young person in a quick speed area when you are 30 centimeters away from someone else on the next phone doing exactly the same thing. The trauma exists not only for yourself and the vulnerability appears for yourself, but also for your children because Kids are pretty good at picking this stuff up, Ash, and pretty, kids are pretty easy to know when dad's upset or when mum's upset. And then that flow-on effect goes to partners as well because they've then, they're at home or, or, or grandparents or whoever's looking after the young kids. They've got to then explain that and they've got to then go through the process of having that discussion with them. So the idea to have tablets or, and, and have access to technology in, this sounds really perverse to say, but the safest place for a lot of people in prison is their cell. And to have that inside their cell when that, that is them, they can speak to, they can engage with at the times that suit family is, is the best way possible. And it gives them somewhere private to have those discussions as well. I imagine there's a lot of things that you don't want to or can't get into because there is those other guys on either side of you. You don't have your own private space. And that, I think, is one of the most important things for a person to have. And, and for both, Ash, and, and um, you know, we, we, we're talking about, there'll be some of your listeners, there'll be some of your listeners and people who pick this up that are like saying, well, they're in prison. It's not party time. 
it's like we're not we're not talking about this here as in a, a celebration. Let's go, you know, who we're talking to everyone in the world. We're exclusively talking to the people that need us the most, mm. and that is our kids. Mistakes have been made. Serving time for those mistakes. The reality is, is your kids are still your kids, and you know the, the research suggests that that missing parent idea or that incarcerated parent idea can go a, can go a long way towards influencing further criminological behaviours by kids um, down the track if those things aren't resolved. So I, I can I can still see Ash in, in in my mind, and I can still see it is that, that the prison where I served my time at the main there was a small dam, and the dam was just a little bit down the hill and away and. After phone calls were made, you know, six o'clock at night, six thirty, seven o'clock, there'd be twenty guys sitting around these things separately with their heads in their hand, crying their eyes out because of the conversations they've just had with their parents or with their with their kids. And you imagine then what that looks like on the other side is that the kids who have just spoken to their dad or have just spoken to mum and where they're at. That was Tune FM's Ash Taylor with Dr. Lucas Carey from the University of New England ending that report. Unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire. Mm-hmm.